0: Welcome to Bible study for regular people. For those of us who are not Bible scholars or experts and really engaging in daily Bible study goes about as well as our last diet. This is my intention to make Bible study convenient and fun. So just listen along or grab your Bible and follow along. Either way, let's get started. This is episode 12 of Bible study for regular people. We are going to get to hear a psalm from David uh, when he is going through a time of grief, which I really relate to a lot. Brings up a lot of feelings for me. We also, in the Old Testament, I think it's really interesting that we're reading about Solomon, building the first temple and when we flip over to the new testament we're reading about the last supper and so while the solomon is creating and and building up this temple jesus as he calls himself the temple that he will destroy and then rebuild and raise in three days like that's carrying out so one's going up and one's coming down Uh, So I hope you will get ready because there's a lot of really good stuff in this one. It's a bit longer than I normally like, but that's just how it works out sometimes. So uh, go for a nice walk in the beautiful sunshine and have a listen. Start off turning in your Bibles to Psalm chapter 6. The theme here is Deliverance in Trouble God is able to rescue us. The author is David for the choir director, a Psalm of David to be accompanied by eight stringed instruments. Well, that's awfully specific, isn't it? Eight stringed instruments. Why not seven? Why not nine? Why not 20? I don't know. Anyway, Psalm chapter six, starting in verse one, and this is only a 10 verse Psalm. O oh Lord, don't rebuke me in your anger or discipline me in your rage. Have compassion on me, Lord, for I am weak. Heal me, Lord, for my bones are in agony. I am sick at heart. How long, O Lord, until you restore me? Return, O Lord, and rescue me. Save me because of your unfailing love, for the dead do not remember you. Who can praise you from the grave? I am worn out from sobbing. All night I flood my bed with weeping, Drenching it with my tears, my vision is blurred by grief, my eyes are worn out because of all my enemies. Go away, all you who do evil, for the Lord has heard my weeping. The Lord has heard my plea, the Lord will answer my prayer. May all my enemies be disgraced and terrified, may they suddenly turn back in shame." Wow. So when I finished reading that, I had to just take a minute to pause and, and think because this Psalm just kind of flooded me with, uh, with memories and feelings. Um, this really humanized David for me just now. And like, it's not like I've never read this before. Okay. After college, when I, uh, had finally graduated and I didn't have to read textbooks and I could for the first time in my young life could read anything I wanted I decided I mostly wanted to read the bible and so every other year for five to six years I read the bible cover to cover in a year and I do different bibles and different reading plans and versions and study bibles and all that kind of stuff so that went on for I read through the Bible cover to cover cover to cover every other year at least 5 times um because like I said I used a different Bible every time and I would I would journal as I went a, in a different way every time. But uh you know it doesn't matter like everything always still feels new because of what's going on in my life in the time that I'm reading it. And so this one humanized David for me, especially in verse six, he says, I'm worn out from sobbing all night. I flood my bed with weeping, drenching it with my tears. And isn't that just how it is, right? Like grief hits at night for some reason. I don't know about for you guys, but it does for me. My vision is blurred by grief. My eyes are worn out because he says, because of all my enemies, And he might have been crying over his enemies, but what brought, uh, the memories that got brought back for me were, um, losses. And I can remember one night, you know, it all hit me and I'm lying in bed, just sobbing and sobbing. And the next morning I wake up and I just bust out laughing actually, because I look beside my bed and there's what looks like this mountain of tissues, (laughs) from the night before it just piled up and I would literally pretty much emptied an entire tissue box the night before oh it was nasty having to clean that up let me tell you it was just yeah anyway um but during uh, a couple years of losses in my life one thing I, I decided to do was to write down how I saw God moving in the life of uh, my family and myself, because during this time of great loss and grief and sorrow, it was so clear how God was moving in our life. And I didn't want to look back and remember only the grief. I wanted to remember all of these positive things happening, things like, uh, family members, plane tickets being completely rescheduled, no change fee, Uh, someone offering to buy someone's plane ticket, meals and gifts and flowers and cards and uh, kind words and people just doing random acts of, of kindness and compassion for us and things that happened in a way that the timing of things just fell into place like dominoes and so I could often in my life I don't see God's handiwork until after the fact but in those times of grief I was actually seeing his handiwork in real time and so I started keeping that journal and I filled pages and pages just of those times and then now I fill a page about once a month uh anyway this was this was a good one because i think it's okay to grieve and and sob and cry out to god in those times but what's neat is he hears that and he reaches down and he acts and he provides comfort Mm -hmm. Okay. So flip over to, well, if you want to flip over first Kings chapter five and six. Now I have pre-read this section and I'm just going to sum it up for you because when I read the title is preparations for building the temple and Solomon builds the temple. I said, Oh no, I cannot sit here and read this to people. Okay. If you have ever read biblical building plans, um, you know why I'm not gonna read this to you because I mean, they really did serve as blueprints and they're very, very detailed and can get pretty dry. But when you zoom out and look at the main key points, then it's actually really, really cool. So I'm just gonna highlight the cool stuff for you and leave out the nitty gritty details. I also encourage you to, when you get a chance, Google image a picture of uh, the temple that Solomon built because of course some really great artists out there have recreated it uh, so that you can kind of get an idea of what it would have looked like according to these dimensions and the descriptions that are in here and it gets very very descriptive Uh, so in first Kings chapter 5 Solomon king of Israel reaches out to a king named Hiram and he's the king of Tyre and basically he explains his temple project and there was a verse I wanted I wanted to read about his explanation of this temple because he's about to hire uh king Hiram's men and he's explained why I need your guys and what they're helping me to do and why this is so important to me so in first kings five verse 5 it says this must be a magnificent temple because our God is greater than all other gods but who can really I'm sorry I think I just quoted you the wrong passage I'm in second chronicles chapter 2 verse 5 sorry uh, but who can really build him a worthy home not even the highest heavens can contain him so I Uh, So who am I to consider building a temple for him except as a place to burn sacrifices to him? And then he flatters Hiram a little bit. And he's like, you know, I've got nobody who can do the kind of work that you can um, for this particular special project. Uh, The Israelites uh, were very skilled in other areas, but he needed... He needed to call in the big guns for this. And so what he requests of this king is, A, a master craftsman. He needs somebody who can be the point man on this project. And also he needs his timber because they had a lot of timber there. And so King Hiram uh gets this project proposal and agrees to it. And the payment was food because of course, this is the day of bartering for the most part. And so he gets paid in wheat, barley, wine, and olive oil. And I doubt it was extra virgin olive oil, but he gets paid in all those things and basically is able to feed all of his, all of his men. And so King Hiram sends Solomon a master craftsman and really talks this guy up. He says he's extremely talented. He can work with gold, silver, bronze, iron, stone, and wood. He can also work with blue, purple, and scarlet cloth. And if you know anything about how they created colors and dyes back in the day, you know that's a big deal uh, because they didn't have lab-made dyes like we do now. And it says he can engrave Any design. So he basically says, This guy's like a professional tattoo artist. Tell him anything and he can do it. And this guy's name is Huram Abi. So he becomes the point man for this whole project. And Solomon sends some of his own men to go work for King Hiram's men to partner on this project. And he actually hires three times the amount of men it would take for this project, sending them off in shifts. He basically deploys them to Lebanon for one month, and then they come home for two months, and then they go back for a month. So they're not gone from their families for an extended period of time. And he also sends a group of his men in his own land to go uh, go to some queries so basically he's getting the ancient israel temple version of granite countertops for this thing uh in let's see so that was first kings five and second chronicles two in first kings six and second chronicles three this is when the construction starts so they break ground And basically the plans for this temple are that it is long and narrow. It's 30 feet wide. The front has a porch. The biggest space is in the middle, 60 feet long. It's the holy place. And then at the very back, a perfect uh, cube, actually 30 feet wide, 30 feet deep, and 30 feet high is the holy of holy places. And so that's the basic shape again google image uh that so you can get an idea of what it might look like um and he also oh so the temple is about 2700 square foot because i i looked that up and that's what they think it is based on all the dimensions given and he also builds a complex next to it that is three stories high. And I tried to look up what this complex was used for because it it just says it's a bunch of rooms and it's three stories high and uh, they think it was used for storage, who knows. And this whole temple took seven years to build. And when you think about the fact that there were no power tools, there was no heavy equipment, everything was done through manual labor and the size and intricate design of this thing the fact that it took them seven years is actually pretty impressive by my book uh oh a couple interesting facts so uh the timber they actually floated the timber down the mediterranean sea in rafts so from tire they chopped it down tied it into rafts, floated it down the river, and uh, the Israelites grabbed it, pulled it out, broke it apart, and were able to use it that way. Of course, we kind of still float timber like that to this day up here in the Northwest. We sure do anyway. Uh, Let's see. Another couple points was, oh, so time frame of this, it says it was Uh, 1 Kings 6 verse 1 gives an intro as to when this is happening. It was in mid-spring in the month of Ziv during the fourth year of Solomon's reign. So he's been king now four years and is finally breaking ground on the temple. Then he began to construct the temple of the Lord. This was 480 years after the people of Israel were rescued from their slavery in the land of Egypt. Uh, And why is that noted? Because that was an awfully big deal in the Israelites' history. Also, the stones used in the construction of the temple were finished. Oh, this is 1 Kings 6, verse 7. Uh, The stones used in the construction of the temple were finished at the quarry. So there was no sound of hammer, axe, or any other iron tool at the building site. So they literally were doing all of the work off-site and then bringing these finished stones to, uh, the temple location and putting them into, into place as a way of honoring God. Let's see. I had a couple other footnotes I wanted to share with you here. Okay. Uh, about, it says, uh, I will live. Verse, First uh, Kings six, verse thirteen. I will live among the Israelites and will never abandon my people Israel. Uh, this was God's message to Solomon. He says, concerning this temple you are building, if you keep on my decrees and regulations, obey all my commands, and I, I will fulfill through you the promise I made to your father David. And then I will live among the Israelites and will never abandon my people Israel. And there's a footnote on this I wanted to read. I thought was really interesting. It says this verse summarizes the temple's main purpose. So let me back up. So the whole point of summarizing this at all, the reason I think we need to pay attention to these building plans and blueprints that the Bible offers is this right here. God promised that his eternal presence would never leave the temple as long as one condition was met. The Israelites had to obey God's law. Knowing how many laws they had to follow, we may think this condition was difficult, but the Israelites' situation was much like ours today. They were not caught up from God for failing to keep some small part of the law. Forgiveness was amply provided for all their sins, no matter how large or small. They were all forgiven for everything, and that's not actually the section I thought I was about to read. Oh, here it is. Okay. In honor of God, the temple in Jerusalem was built without the sound of a hammer or any other tool at the building site. This meant that the stone had to be pre-finished, cut in shape, miles away at the quarry. The the people's honor and respect for God extended to every aspect of constructing this house of worship. This detail is recorded not to teach us how to build a church, but to show us the importance of demonstrating care, concern, honor, and respect for God and his Sanctuary. So now think about the temple as it is today. The temple today is each of us. Our bodies are the temples because God lives in us. And think about that. Think of your body as the temple as I read this next piece here. Why was the temple decorated so ornately? Although no one can build God a worthy home, this temple was going to be the best that humans could do. The care and craftsmanship were acts of worship in themselves. Although a simple chapel is an adequate place to pray and meet God, it is not wrong to want to make a beautiful place of worship. And when I think of my body being the temple, what this makes me think is about taking care of it, eating right, getting adequate sleep, staying physically active. In other words, not abusing my body and also taking care of my mind and my thoughts Anyway, God expected them to take care of this temple. I don't think God has changed. Um, one last really cool thing. So two last really cool things. At the back, the very back of the most holy place, stood these two giant, giant cherubim who had their wings spread open to either side. Each one, each wing was seven and a half feet long. And so the the wings, as they had them outstretched, so one standing on one side of the room with its wings outstretched, the tip of one wing, touch, one wing touches the wall, and the tip of the other is directly in the middle of the room. And it touches the wing of the other cherubim, who is stretching from his wing to the other wall. So imagine looking up, 30 feet high are these ceiling height cherubim with their wings outstretched going the entire width of the room. I think that must have been really cool to see. And the last piece is uh that across the entrance of that room hung a curtain that was blue, purple, and scarlet. Now this particular temple is going to get destroyed. It gets destroyed a few times. And so by Jesus Day this temple isn't standing, but it has been rebuilt. And that curtain, that blue, purple, and scarlet curtain, it gets remade and hung back up. And when Jesus died, this is the one that gets torn in half. Like, yeah, we don't have to go into a most holy place anymore. Jesus changed that. And now we can go to God directly. So now flip over to the New Testament, and I would, if you're following along, I would first mark your Bible at John 13, and then mark your Bible at Matthew 26. Uh, We'll be starting in verse 20. So John 13 is Jesus washing the disciples' feet, and then it goes straight into the Last Supper, Uh, and so in the, in the Matthew portion on the last supper, I'm going to just read the Matthew version, and then I will be sharing with you whatever's interesting from the other gospels. So I will find the juiciest tidbits and add those in for you. So starting in John 13 verse one, before the Passover celebration. Oh, so recap. Uh, We left off with Jesus telling his disciples that he was going to be crucified. At the same time, the priests were plotting his death. And shortly after, Judas walks in their door and says, hey, how much will you pay me to give Jesus to you? So that's where we're at. John 13, verse one, before the Passover celebration, Jesus knew that his hour had come to leave this world and return to his father. He had loved his disciples during his ministry on earth, and now he loved them to the very end. It was time for supper and the devil had already prompted Judas, son of Simon Iscariot, to betray Jesus. Jesus knew that the father had given him authority over everything and that he had come from God and would return to God. So he got up from the table, took off his robe, wrapped a towel around his waist and poured water into a basin. Then he began to wash the disciples' feet, drying them with the towel he had around him. When Jesus came to Simon Peter, Peter said to him, "Lord, are you going to wash my feet?" Jesus replied, "You don't understand now what I am doing, but someday you will." "No," Peter protested, "you will never ever wash my feet." Jesus replied, "Unless I wash you, you won't belong to me." Jesus, Peter, or uh, Simon Peter exclaimed, "Then wash my hands and my head as well, Lord, not just my feet." Oh, Peter, Jesus always keeps us entertained. Picking up in verse 10, Jesus replied, A person who has bathed all over does not need to wash except for the feet to be entirely clean. And you disciples are clean, but not all of you. For Jesus knew who would betray him. That is what he meant when he said not all of you are clean. After washing their feet, he put on his robe again and sat down and asked, Do you understand what I was doing? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, because that's what I am. And since I, your Lord, the teacher, have washed your feet, you ought to wash each other's feet. I have given you an example to follow. Do as I've done to you. I tell you the truth. Slaves are not greater than their master, nor is the messenger more important than the one who sends the message now that you know these things god will bless you for doing them i'm not saying these things to all of you i know the ones i have chosen but this fulfills the scripture that says the one who eats my food has turned against me i tell you this beforehand so that when it happens you will believe what i am uh, you will believe that i am the messiah and here i am is all capitals which means he's saying the word uh, for God, I tell you the truth. Anyone who welcomes my messenger is welcoming me. And anyone who welcomes me is welcoming the father who sent me. So now flip over to Matthew chapter 26, and we are just picking the storyline right up, starting in verse 20. When it was evening, Jesus sat down at the table with the 12 disciples while they were eating. He said, I tell you the truth. One of you will betray me. Greatly distressed, each one asked in turn, Am I the one, Lord? He replied, One of you who has just eaten from this bowl with me will betray me, for the Son of Man must die, as the Scriptures declared long ago. But how terrible it will be for the one who betrays him. It would be far better for that man if he had never been born. Judas... The one who would betray him also asked, Rabbi, am I the one? And Jesus told him, you have said it. As they were eating, Jesus took some bread and blessed it. Then he broke it in pieces and gave it to the disciples saying, take this and eat it for this is my body. And he took a cup of wine and gave thanks to God for it. He gave it to them and said, each of you drink from it for this is my blood, which confirms the covenant between God and his people. It is poured out as a sacrifice to forgive the sins of many. Mark my words. I will not drink wine again until the day I drink it new with you in my father's kingdom. Then they sang a hymn and went out to the Mount of Olives. Continuing in verse 31, Matthew 26, verse 31. On the way, that is on the way to the Mount of Olives, Jesus told them, Tonight, all of you will desert me. For the scriptures say, God will strike the shepherd and the sheep of the flock will be scattered. And let's see, that is quoting Zechariah thirteen seven. But after I have been raised from the dead, I will go ahead of you to Galilee and meet you there. Peter declared, Even if everyone else deserts you, I will never desert you. Oh, Peter, there you go again. Twice in one night, he sticks his foot in his mouth. Jesus replied, I tell you the truth, Peter, this very night before the rooster crows, you will deny me three times that you even know me. No, Peter insisted, even if I have to die with you, I will never deny you. And all the other disciples vowed the same. Well, you know, you got to give him credit for having a little flair for drama. So there is some really good juicy stuff here that I'm very excited to share with you. Uh first on the washing of the disciples' feet. Sorry about that beep. I got a notification. Uh just a couple things here. The Overall point seems to be that Jesus is saying, look, guys, if I, your rabbi, teacher, Messiah, Lord, can wash your feet, who are you to think that you're ever above doing that, right? And so when we turn our noses at those who are homeless or smell bad or we just don't have time for them, you know, Jesus is like, "Uh, do you remember me? washing people's feet, taking the role of a servant, sometimes you got to get down on the ground and get to work. Uh, When he turns to Peter and says, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. I had an interesting section of my footnotes on this. It says when Jesus responded, unless I wash you, you won't belong to me. He may have meant one, that unless he washed away Peter's sins by his death on the cross, then Peter would have no relationship with him. Or two, that unless Peter submitted to him and allowed Jesus to minister in this way, Peter would never learn the lesson of humility. Either way, Peter seemed to grasp the significance of Jesus' words, for he then wanted to be bathed completely. Now, on the Last Supper... So Mark is basically exactly like Matthew, and if Matthew and Mark are bullet points, Luke and John really go into the whole narrative, and they add uh, a lot more information. So first, they are sitting down to eat, and Luke adds a statement. Jesus says right at the beginning as they're sitting down. He says, I've been very eager to eat this Passover meal with you before my suffering begins. For I tell you now that I won't eat this meal again until its meaning is fulfilled in the kingdom of God. Now, this seems weird that he'd be eager for this meal uh, before, you know, when he's about to suffer and die. But I I think back to um, his... uh, triumphant entry and he comes in on the donkey and before he's entering Jerusalem he begins to mourn not for what he's about to go through but for what the city is about to go through and so here I think is just another display of Jesus thinking of others before himself getting to have this meal with his disciples is a huge moment in their formation um, and him getting ready to, you know, launch them into the world to do his work and basically create the foundation of, of what will become Christianity. You know, Jesus really focused on just the 12. It was his disciples who then went and multiplied everything exponentially. Let's see. And then when it goes on to them talk about who's about to betray Jesus, Luke adds, he says there, uh, but here at this table, sitting among us as a friend is a man who will betray me for it has been determined that the son of man must die. But what sorrow awaits the one who betrays him? The disciples began to ask each other, which of them would ever do such a thing then, and that's kind of it for that at the moment with, with Luke, then they go on to a different conversation. Then they began to argue among themselves about who would be the greatest among them. Jesus told them, in this world, the kings and great men lorded over their people, yet they are called friends of the people. But among you, it will be different. Those who are the greatest among you should take the lowest rank and the leader should be like a servant. And so I'm sure in their minds, it's flashing back to just a little while earlier where he was washing their feet. says who is more important the one who sits at the table or the one who serves the one who sits at the table of course but not here for I am among you as one who serves you have stayed with me in my time of trial and just as my father has granted me a kingdom I now grant you the right to eat and drink at my table in my kingdom and you will sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel and my uh, Bible, which of course is the, I forgot to mention chronological life application study Bible mentions about this verse right here, where he's talking to them about sitting on thrones in his kingdom. You know, what was it that qualified them to that position? And this footnote, it points out. The only thing we have to go on is what Jesus said, which is you have stayed with me in my time of trial. The disciples had simply stuck it out. Jesus did not recognize their service or their humility or their leadership or their wisdom. They simply stuck with Jesus and persevered. We believe that we are saved by grace through faith, but it's easy to think that God's honor roll will list those who accomplished the most for God's kingdom. But the disciples were promised great places in God's kingdom for simply having stayed with Jesus. If you're losing hope in producing something worthwhile for God, or if you're hanging on to God by threads, be encouraged and hold on. Be faithful sometimes, oh, being faithful sometimes simply means staying with Jesus, persevering, and sticking it out. I thought that was a neat, a neat perspective on that. I have uh, never heard from a pulpit before. Let's see. Okay, so about uh, this whole communion thing, I've got a, so, so in my footnotes in this Bible, some of them I don't like, and I remember that these are just humans writing these comments, and sometimes I disagree with them. Others of them are just filler, and then every once in a while, there's some really good stuff like that one I just read, and then I like the uh, cultural background that they give, and this is a, a little bit of that. Um, well, this one isn't, but, uh, oh yeah, yeah, here it is. Luke mentions two cups of wine while Matthew and Mark mention only one. In the traditional Passover meal, wine is served four times. Christ spoke the words about his body and his blood when he offered the fourth and last cup. I was like, oh, I didn't know that. So there's different interpretations of why why the lord's supper right and there's it says there's three main views number one the bread and wine actually become christ's body and blood some people believe that kind of makes us cannibals anyway number two the bread and wine remain unchanged yet christ is spiritually present by faith in and through them well i don't know about you but when i've eaten cracker and wine they still taste like cracker and wine So that might be it. And three, the bread and wine, which remain unchanged, are lasting memorials of Christ's sacrifice. No matter which view they favor, all Christians agree that the Lord's Supper commemorates Christ's death on the cross for our sins and points to the coming of his kingdom and glory. So, okay. So that's what they symbolize. But what happens when we take them? And there's different views on that. It could be, one, It humbles us before God. We confess our sin and restate our need for God to guide us. Two, reminds us that we are forgiven. We remember that his shed blood paid the price. Three, expresses our oneness in Christ. We are unified in our faith. And I think that one's probably the one that I keep in mind the most when I'm taking communion. um, Is that it's an expression of of my oneness in Christ, that he is within me. Uh, Or or this one, number four, encourages us to recommit. We are reminded to pledge ourselves to serve him who died for us. Okay, so moving on to John's version, there are a couple things he added um, concerning Judas. Um, In John, he mentions where he identified Judas by the... And dip the bread in the bowl together and after that Jesus turns to him and says hurry and do what you're going to do none of the others at the table knew what Jesus meant since Judas was their treasurer. some thought Jesus was telling him to go and pre- go and pay for the food or to give some money to the poor so Judas left at once going out into the night well they think he was going to pay for something and he was actually going to get paid to betray Jesus is what was actually about to happen Okay. And finally, in the last, uh, act of this scene, um, where they are on the Mount of Olives and, uh, Jesus is told Peter, he's, he's going to deny him three times that night. So again, Matthew and Mark just give the bullet points, but Luke and John add some more juicy details. In Luke 22, verse 31, Jesus turns to Peter and he says, Simon, Simon, Satan has asked to sift each of you like wheat. But I have pleaded in prayer for you, Simon, that your faith should not fail. So when you have repented and turned to me again, strengthen your brothers. I read that and my brain kind of stuttered for a second. I'm like, wait, what? First of all, Satan asked to sift each of you like wheat. So Satan asking God to sift us like wheat doesn't sound pleasant to me, right? So he's asking permission. So Satan has some sort of limited power there in order to do some sort of a a test or trial of humans, And then Jesus' response is that he prayed. So Jesus, God in the flesh, Messiah, creator, savior, praying for us, right? Like that blows my mind too. He says, I pray that your faith should not fail. So Jesus praying for the faith of a human. My mind is a little bit blown. Anyway, um, let's see, then Jesus asked them, okay, so he tells Peter he's going to deny him three times and then he says, when I sent you out to preach the good news and you did not have money, a traveler's bag or an extra pair of sandals, did you need anything? No, they replied. But now he said, take your money and a traveler's bag and if you don't have a sword, sell your cloak and buy one for the time has come for this prophecy about me to be fulfilled, he was counted among the rebels and he was quoting Isaiah 53, 12 there. He says, yes, everything written about me by the prophets will come true. Look, Lord, they replied, we have two swords among us. That's enough. He said, all right. And then finally in John's version, oh, I should have read this earlier. Um, back up to where they're still in the room of the last supper. Judas is just uh, run out of the room and Jesus turns to them and says, the time has come for the son of man to enter into his glory and God will be glorified because of him. And since God receives glory because of the son, he will soon give glory to the son. Dear children, I will be with you only a little longer. And as I told the Jewish leaders, you will search for me, but you can't come where I am going. So now I'm giving you a new commandment. Love each other just as I have loved you. You should love each other. Your love for one another will prove to the world that you are my disciples. Simon Peter asked, Lord, where are you going? And Jesus replied, you can't go with me now, but you will follow me later. But why can't I come now, Lord? He asked, I'm ready to die for you. And Jesus answered, what do you think? Die for me? I tell you the truth, Peter. Before the rooster crows tomorrow morning, you will deny me three times. So, that, that's basically this whole event, this whole night. Jesus washes their feet. He's excited about the supper. The The whole mood gets kind of a damper on it when they realize one of them is going to betray them. And then Judas runs out of the room. And then they go up onto the mountain. And then Peter learns that he's going to deny Jesus. So they thought they were going to have this great Passover celebration meal and uh, the the ambiance is getting a little gloomy but they don't know what's about to happen but Jesus does.